Uh, good morning, <clears throat> New Hope Fellowship Uptown. Great to be worshiping with all of you. And it was also just so encouraging to see many of you guys at the AGM yesterday and just seeing and being reminded of how even though 2020 has been really difficult year that God has nonetheless been so faithful and we've been experiencing his spirit move powerfully in our community and it's just wonderful to take those moments and celebrate and to also look forward to what God has in store for his own glory in 2021 how we get to be a part of that and you know there once was a couple a very romantic couple this story really melted the hearts of everybody in a particular town because there was this one man who was truly the envy of all people. All the guys wanted to be just like him. All the women wanted to be with him. He was successful, wealthy, famous, very generous. And out of his magnanimity, he actually fell in love with a servant girl. He could have loved anybody, pretty much anybody in the town, but instead he set his eyes on one servant girl who lived in poverty. She didn't know who her parents were. She never had a sense of belonging or community, and she basically lived her life in isolation, loved by nobody. But this man, for whatever reason, fell in love with her. They proposed wedding planning, and finally it was the big day of their marriage. And again, this was the romantic story of all romantic stories. Everybody in the town at the wedding, they were crying, they were weeping because they never saw such selfless love from a husband. And even from the bride-to-be, she was finally decked out, wearing makeup, um, looking beautiful, wearing clothes that she never even dreamt of. And to make a long story short, as they get married... Their holy matrimony is now official. They go on a honeymoon. And in this honeymoon, the wife was thinking about this honeymoon over and over again, what it would be like. They were going to fly first class. They were going to rent a very luxurious sports car. They're going to go to the most tropical remote island known to the world. And she was so excited to enjoy this honeymoon with her new husband. Unfortunately, however, their flight got canceled or got delayed, and unfortunately, they weren't able to sit in first class, and they actually had to sit in just normal business class, and she felt a little disappointed. As they went to the car rental shop, unfortunately, that car was unavailable, and they had to rent a car that wasn't all that fancy to begin with, and again, she was very disappointed. Even worse is the 10 days of honeymoon that they had scheduled and their itinerary was packed. And again, this is one of the most tropical remote islands. Unpredictably, the entire weeks of weather was storm after storm and they actually had to be locked into their hotel. And even their hotel that was supposed to be five stars for whatever reason, there were some communication issues and problems. They got downgraded to a motel and again, At this point, the wife is thinking, this is not what I signed up for. This isn't what I envisioned and imagined of what my honeymoon would be like. And she became a little irritable. She became a little bitter. And the honeymoon for her began as something that was not a very pleasant experience. And the husband noticed this, that not only was she very disappointed, but she was even being a little resentful towards her husband. And her husband asked, Honey, what's wrong? We're finally married. 
why is it that it seems like you're not enjoying our matrimony? And she couldn't really quite place her finger on it, but it was probably a series of all these different misfortunate, unfortunate circumstances of her being let down. And her husband says something very important because the wife said, aren't you also disappointed? For the first time, I'm able to leave outside the country, see the world, and all of this is becoming a miserable experience for me. And the husband says, I'm just thankful that we're together. I'm just thankful that we're finally married. And it really doesn't matter what kind of car we drive. It doesn't matter what the weather is like. It doesn't really matter what the circumstances are like. What truly matters and what fills my heart with joy is the fact that our matrimony is finally real and we get to live this out for the rest of our lives. I'm sure many of you guys caught on. That is a story that I just made up. But although it's a fictional story, I believe that story is so true for so many of us. As much as I want to empathize and I want to be compassionate to the struggles that we're experiencing, and yes, we are experiencing a lot of struggles, and I'm going to provide an update on Marcelo's family, um, just reiterating some of the emails that we've been sending about how a lot of us are going through difficulties. And even as our brother Christian pray with such sensitivity, those are real problems. But at the same time, one thing that the only anchor, the only joy that we've ever had before pandemic, during pandemic, after pandemic, it's true. Our only hope has always been in our union with Christ, has only been because Christ has loved us so sacrificially and has not only saved us, but has incorporated us into the intimate relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit that we get to enjoy this intimate relationship for not only in this life, but all of eternity. And yes, many of us are experiencing a lot of setbacks. And yes, some of them may seem a little bit more serious than not getting that rental car or not being able to fly first class. I understand. But in the grand scheme of things, from an eternal perspective, and especially as I'm going to unpack a little bit more, when we think about the state of our life, the state of our heart apart from Christ and what Christ has accomplished and now especially through the Holy Spirit, all of our problems are truly as trivial as not getting that rental car for that 10-day vacation. And, you know, one of the glorious things about Sunday worship service is we need to be reminded of how blessed we are, how precious, how undeserving this gift of salvation is, and how this gift of salvation that has been brought to us only by Christ truly shapes profoundly every aspect of our everyday lives. So we're going to unpack that, and we're going to do that by focusing specifically on what the Holy Spirit does in this gift of salvation. There are so many things that He does, but we're going to focus on three things uh, based on a chapter or a few verses in the, the letter to Titus that Paul wrote to one of his co-workers in the gospel. And we're going to talk a little bit with a little bit more clarity of how God is truly the main character in our salvation. From beginning to end, it is thoroughly a work of God's grace. And he does that in many ways. We can unpack so many different things, but we're going to highlight three ways that the Holy Spirit is so active in this gift of salvation. And I hope it can be a great reminder and maybe even a rebuke for some of us to really focus on the fact that we are married to Christ. We are united with Christ. That in itself should just blow us away regardless of what kind of setbacks we experience.
Um, so yeah, the title of today's sermon is um, uh, Every Step You Take, He'll Be Saving You. I'll elaborate further on what this means because I know this could be misunderstood. Um, but really, it's the idea that from start to finish, God is the one saving us. He does save us definitively, and we can have much security in that. But even as our life transpires, He is constantly saving us. Every step of the way, His Holy Spirit is working powerfully in our lives. And there's so much that we can unpack, so this is just going to be part one. We're going to talk about other aspects of this throughout the sermon series of the unstoppable work of the Holy Spirit. Let me read the passage. Um, it's only a few verses. And again, just to provide a brief context, this is one of probably the last, one of the last letters of Paul that we have available. And he writes specifically to Titus, who is a co-worker of the gospel. He himself is one of the emerging leaders, pastors of the early churches, and he has been so faithfully serving alongside Paul. And uh, we're just going to touch base on a few verses that really focus on the Holy Spirit's role in this amazing gift of salvation. So Paul writes to Titus, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Wow, there's, uh, again, a lot of really weighty words. And in, this short verses, in these short verses, what Paul is doing is he is outlining some of the basic tenets, the core aspects of the gospel. He lays out very succinctly, just in a matter of, what, five verses. And we're going to break this down and then we're going to talk specifically about three aspects of salvation that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts and is currently doing in our hearts. But before we get there, let's just take it verse by verse because, again, there's so much to unpack. <clears throat> First, Paul mentions the state of our heart, the state of our existence, the state of our life before God intervened and extended his grace and his love towards us. And he writes, Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish. Maybe we thought we were wise in our own eyes. Maybe we were very educated and intellectually capable. But in God's eyes, we were utterly foolish. Living for stupid things, trivial things that are very transient, and living with self-centered, sinful motivations. We were disobedient. We weren't Focus on living in obedience to God who created this entire universe. And as we talked about, I think it was just last week, where not only did he create life itself, but he is the reason why life is even sustained. The very breath that I am breathing, the very breath that you are breathing, it is borrowed breath from God. Every, literally every breath that we take is a gift of God. And he deserves our obedience. But before Christ, we lived in utter disobedience. We didn't live according to his desires. We didn't live according to his will as it's revealed to us in word, in his scripture. We didn't live 
thinking about his character and the ways that he is so intimately involved in our lives. Instead, we suppress it or we distort it or we flat out reject it. We lived in disobedience. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, workaholism, or even, I don't know, materialism, sexual addiction, all these different things. We were truly enslaved, and not only were we enslaved, but we were hopeless, powerless. There was nothing inherently good in us that can even overcome these things. In fact, at the time, we didn't even think we were enslaved because that was just the default way that we thought the world worked to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, always being envious of our friends as much as we love our friends, as much as we care about them, we can't help but to size up their accomplishments, their resume, their their CV with our own. We can't help but to live in greed and that's why things like advertisement works so well in society because our hearts, we cannot help but to be envious. We cannot help but to be covetous. We were hated by others, hating one another. We were not marked by love, but instead we were marked with hate. And what Paul is saying is before Christ, when we think back of the way sin reigns in our lives as our judge, as our master, and as that influence, we were utterly at the disposal of the power of sin in all aspects. We were, as Paul writes probably more succinctly in Ephesians chapter 2, we were spiritually dead. I mean, there was nothing in our heart that had any inherent good. And not only were we spiritually dead where God looks at us as a, a, a corpse and feels sorry for us. No, he doesn't feel sorry for us initially. When he looks at us, we are objects of his wrath. We are filthy because, again, foolish, disobedient, slaves, malice, envy, hatred, Wicked rebellion against God. And that is the state of all of our hearts, apart from Christ. Paul is basically reminding us that don't forget, apart from Christ, apart from God's intervention, every single one of us, he doesn't care if we grew up in church. He doesn't care how many mission trips we've been to. He doesn't care how much we've tithed or how many sacrifices. It doesn't matter. Before Christ, apart from Christ, We were not only spiritually dead, like there was nothing beating in our hearts, but we were utterly offensive before God. And yet, for whatever reason, and it's a mystery that I don't think we'll ever be able to untangle, is God, out of God's goodness and out of his loving kindness, I don't know why, but out of his loving kindness, even though we were utterly, thoroughly, offensive, objects of wrath, enemies before God. He was moved and he saved us. Our Savior appeared. He saved us. Notice the repetition. And when we talk about salvation, everybody wants salvation. But do you understand what it means to obtain salvation? It means you need to be saved. It means that you are in a dire need of somebody else to rescue you. There is utterly nothing you can do to save yourself. There's no part that we have in salvation. It is completely God's salvation. He is the Savior. We are the people who are in absolute need. and We are completely subject to His act of mercy and His love. Because if it weren't for His love and mercy, righteously, 
He should damn us eternally. But instead, He saved us. And Paul makes this even more emphatically clear as we read on. He saved us not because, just to clarify, not because of the works done by us. Not because, we, again, we grew up in the church. We helped the grandmother walk across the streets. None of those things. Paul says all those things fall short of the glory, the standard of God. He saved us just out of his own mercy. He says this, but according to his own mercy. We need to remember, just like that fictional story, who we were before this privileged matrimony, before this union with Christ. And yes, our life, in some ways, we are experiencing misery. But that misery pales in comparison to what we actually deserve. And not just for 2020 are we experiencing misery. Just in the, the misery that we deserve, that is rightfully ours, because of our wicked, sinful rebellion against God, is not just for 2020, it is for all of eternity. It is absolute separation from God's presence, who is a source of all life, all joy. We should have been completely severed and cut off from that. But it's only because of His mercy. This gift of salvation is completely undeserving. And again, as much as I want to empathize with what we're going through, sometimes I sense that we forget how undeserving this gift of salvation is because we live our lives almost entitled, thinking that our lives should be easy, thinking that our lives should be filled with one success after another. And yes, God does bless us. There are seasons of success. There are seasons of green pasture. So I don't want to paint life as if it's just going to be doom and gloom until we see Jesus. Yes, there are. But in the valleys of the shadow of death, when God does lead us into difficult seasons, we shouldn't have this assumption, presumptuous attitude, thinking that we're entitled, that life should be any easier. Instead, we should be absolutely thankful that as much as we experience misery on earth, it is just a pale glimpse of what Jesus saved us from. It should actually stir us into a heart of thanksgiving worship. Now here I want to focus on three aspects that the Holy Spirit plays in this gift of salvation. Um, You know, if you're into systematic theological books, then these are called the different stages or events or the steps of the Ordo Salutis, which is the order of salvation. And they're not really chronological steps, and that's why I don't really like to use the word steps or stages. I I like to look at these three things as aspects or expressions of our union with Christ. Because we have now been united with Christ, what does that mean? Well, there are three, at least three implications, and we're going to focus on those three things. The first one is regeneration. I'm going to explain what that is, and I'm also going to explain how that that is just profoundly practical for us as well. It's not just some philosophical abstract concept, but it has tremendous, profound implications in the ways that we see God even today. The second expression or aspect of the union with Christ is conversion. And I'll again explain what that is and how that can be practically relevant for us. And the third is adoption. And we've talked about how we are children of God and all those things are true. But I'm going to, based on this passage, there is a different focus, a different emphasis 
that again is just such a glorious blessing that God has given to us. So let's take it one at a time. And the first one is regeneration. And Paul says it explicitly. So he goes on, "By by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So when we think about the idea of regeneration, at least in this verse, it's attributed mainly to the role of the Holy Spirit. And what does regeneration mean? And in this context, regeneration and renewal, they're almost used synonymously. And again, you have to remember, the state of our heart apart from Christ is we are dead. And we, every, there is no inherent good in us. Every inclination, every tendency, every our nature, just our disposition, our proclivities, whatever word you want to use, we are hell-bent towards being offensive to God. That is the state of our heart, apart from God's intervention. So how do we get from that dead, offensive state to this new state where we are now united with Christ? Well, one aspect of that is regeneration. And probably the best way of translating this word, regeneration is a good word, but the way it's commonly used in ancient Greek literature is a rebirth. An utter renewal. It's not like we needed to be improved and we just needed to learn a few interesting aspects of who God is. And aha, we figured it out now. No, it is a rebirth. Completely new. And that makes sense. Because when something is dead, you can't just do surgery on that person. But that person, Being, that biological entity needs to be completely renewed, regenerated. And that's what the Holy Spirit did for us. Is he saw us. Not only were we utterly dead, but we were utterly offensive. And yet, for whatever reason, yes, it's out of his loving kindness, but why would he be loving and kind towards us? I don't know. But for whatever reason, he chose to take what what's dead and what's offensive, his own enemies, and he breathed life in us. He gave us a rebirth, a new birth, regeneration, renewal. At the lowest of lows, you can't get any lower than being spiritually dead and an enemy and an object of wrath. You can't get lower than that. That is the nadir of the lowest of lows. And even though we were at that point, God stretched out his hands. And one way of expressing that work of salvation is the Holy Spirit regenerated, gave us new birth. We couldn't have done any of that. We take no part in that. That is thoroughly God. A dead person, if he is brought back to life, you don't give credit to the dead person. It's not like because that dead person had a really vital heart or a very persistent pair of lungs. That person was dead it's completely and utterly attributed to the work of a god and in this specific instance with regeneration according to this verse the holy spirit what was completely dead and oblivious to god now we are awakened now our spirit is alive now we have new life And this gift of regeneration, this aspect of regeneration, 
you know, it's not just a, a nice philosophical thing. Oh, I guess that's great. Like, I'm so glad that God did that for me. It has real life implications as well. First of all, like I mentioned, is as we do experience difficulties and setbacks, don't forget what state our heart was like. Like, just imagine if you were somebody who literally died biologically and you were brought to life miraculously. It's all over the news. All the YouTubers, everybody's trying to interview, trying to figure out what had happened. And it's just a divine miracle. You are living a new biological life and you are so thankful that you didn't have to leave behind your spouse or your kids or whatever. You're so thankful. A week later, you get a paper cut. A week later, you stub your toe. A week later, you experience back problems. And you are so fixated on that. And not only are you fixated on that, but that robs you of your joy. And that actually makes you feel like maybe God isn't present in your life. And again, like as much as I empathize with paper cuts and with our backs going out and us stubbing our toes, the pain is real. I'm not sweeping that under the rug. But do you forget just a few weeks ago, you were raised from the dead. Brothers and sisters, I understand our life in some ways are diff is difficult right now. But do you understand not just our biological life, but our eternal life has been renewed? That should drastically change the way we live and encounter difficulties in our lives. Moreover, for some of us who feel so distant from God, who feel so vulnerable, and maybe right now you still feel like you're living a life of foolishness, of disobedience, where you are enslaved to different addictions and sinful habits, whatever it is. And maybe you've never received Christ. Maybe, the, maybe you're non-Christian, you're just checking this out. Or maybe you have received Christ before and you're feeling very vulnerable and you feel like, I don't know if I can come to God. If God stretched out his hand while we were at the nadir of nadirs, where we couldn't have been any more offensive, and yet God, in his loving kindness, still stretched out, and his Holy Spirit still regenerated us, then surely, even if you're experiencing a difficult season right now, our God is one prayer away. He is so present. And if he loved, if he showcases mercy towards his objects of wrath at the height of their offensiveness before God, then certainly... God will show that much more mercy and kindness to those who are in Christ. Even if we're experiencing a difficult season. Even if we're experiencing a season of rebellion. If he showcased that radical, nonsensical love at the nadir of our disobedience, then that just goes to show that even at this point, he is still merciful and his love is still unwavering. And for those of us who haven't received Christ, I encourage you, Marvel at the fact that this God wants to save you. Marvel at this fact that despite your sin, this God wants to awaken your soul. He wants to breathe new life into your heart. And if you don't believe me, ask your friends who invited you to this church service or ask other people 
The reason why we gather together every Sunday is because we've tasted this. We've experienced this in our own lives. We would literally die for this. This is what we are living for. This is what motivates us to love and to pray and to live a selfless life. It's because God did this in our lives. We are walking testimonies. We're not perfect, but we are walking testimonies of how undeserving this regeneration is. Now, the second expression of our union with Christ, or the second step or stage of this ordo salutis, and again, they're not chronological steps, so that's why I don't like to use those terms. But yeah, the second aspect of salvation is the, na- the, the natural result of having a regenerated heart. So what does it mean now that I'm regenerated? Well, now that I have a new life, now that I've experienced new birth, Well, that leads to the second expression, which is what people mostly call conversion. Where at that point, we are converted from that state of rebellion, and now we have a new mentality, a new attitude, new new outlook on life. And the way conversion is typically broken down, and you see this throughout Scripture, and you see, you probably heard this from me ad nauseum through all the sermons, is repentance and faith is when we really think about what Paul is writing here. At one point, we're objects of wrath. We're spiritually dead. And out of his mercy, out of his kindness, he undeservingly saved us and gave us eternal life, a joy that is unshakable. We can't help but to repent. I mean, that's just a natural response. Is We repent of not only our former life, but we repent of the ways that we don't focus And appreciate this gift of salvation and this union with Christ. We repent in the ways that we are just like that person that I mentioned who biologically experienced new life. And yet he is so fixated on that paper cut. Or that fictional story of that bride who came out of rags and rose to riches. But she is still discontent. Because instead of focusing on this amazing gift of matrimony, she's focusing on all the benefits, the situations and circumstances we need to repent of our sin of our foolishness of our disobedience how even today even though slave is no longer our master or our judge sin still has a profound influence and yes we still sin we still experience hatred we still experience envy malice what's the appropriate response is not only are we sensitive to that but we repent and we confess before god God, I need your grace. I don't have what it takes. I don't live up to your standard. I still fall short. And you know, when I disciple and walk through with many of us, especially in our uptown community, but even prior, back in Mississauga, back in Philadelphia, one of the things that I am becoming more and more convinced of is how do you know you are in Christ I think one of the greatest litmus tests is not how much you pray or how much you read the Bible or how much theology you know or how involved you are in church. To me, it's it's how repentant are you? And it's not just acts of repentance. It's it's your mentality. It's it's your mode of thinking, mode of living. How repentant are you? How aware are you of your sin? And how aware are you of your desperate and utter need of God's grace and involvement in your life? And repentance is not a curse word. Repentance is a joyous word. 
Repentance is the gateway into the ability for us to place our exclusive trust in God. And that's why repentance and faith, they go hand in hand. Is when we place our trust in God, no longer in ourselves, no longer in our situations and circumstances, but completely in what Christ has done, that is true joy, true peace, true life. And therefore, repentance is truly a gift where we are so blind and hardened to our own sin, but the Spirit is the one, as it says in Romans 2, as we talked about in John 16, convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Spirit is the one that convicts us, exposes the things that we took for granted, that we're oblivious all along. And it leads us to repent. And instead of wallowing in self-misery and being self condemnatory and just focusing on ourselves instead the spirit enables us to shift our focus on christ how he paid for it all and how because we are now united with him that sin no longer has final judgment over our lives that sin is no longer our master we've been liberated we've been set free the spirit does that and again this idea of conversion of repentance and faith you know, I've just been walking along some, and even this past week, as I connected with some of you guys over the phone or video or via email, like it's just, it's just incredible. I'm just so thankful because some of you are experiencing such difficulties in life. One of, you know, I want to keep this anonymous to respect people's privacy, but I know some of us during our workday, it is so overwhelming that sometimes you cry regularly during your workday. Sometimes when you look at your life, you can't help but to feel like you're such a failure in the eyes of the people you love and care about, your family members. Your life isn't transpiring the way you thought it would. Some of us, the very things that are just so core to our desires, it feels like those things are being stripped away from us. Some of us, were experiencing just a lostness and we can't quite place our finger on it. And that makes us feel even more guilty and ashamed because we're not really going through any difficulties per se. And yet our hearts just feel so distant from God. Through all of that, as I've been walking with some of you guys, you yourselves have been saying, what has been giving you hope is Repentance. Knowing that ultimately your work doesn't define your identity. Knowing that ultimately you feeling depressed about your situation in life is because you're idolizing how other people view you and you haven't really grappled with the idea that your identity now is in Christ. It has led us to repentance. And when I hear you guys repent, it's not like, oh, I'm repenting and I'm that person who's now in time out in the corner being condemned by God. But no, when I hear you guys repent, I hear joy because the very next breath, the very next sentence, you're also sharing about because I recognize how I've been idolizing all these other things, the situations, the things that this world can offer. It reminds me of how gracious God is, that he still loves me nonetheless. And it makes me that much more amazed that my identity and my destiny are fixed in Christ. In other words, they're placing their trust, their faith, not in this world, but in what Christ has done. 
And yeah, I understand their life is not easy. We're all experiencing burnout. We're all experiencing difficulties. But when we repent and when we place our trust in God, we are reminded that, man, this gift of salvation, this gift of our union with Christ, it trumps any difficult season that God has placed us in. The last aspect that we're going to talk about, so we talked about regeneration, we talked about conversion. The next one, I mean, we can talk about so many other things. I feel like we're going to pass over some things. But again, this is just part one. We're going to talk about other aspects throughout the sermon series. But the third thing is adoption. Uh, We could talk about justification. I mean, he talks about that here. We could talk about washing, which is sanctification. And we talked about that in 1 Thessalonians sermon series. And we'll I'll be sure to emphasize that again in later sermons. But again, to keep this sermon at, um, at its appropriate length, we're going to talk about adoption. And Paul says that whom God poured out, God poured out the Holy Spirit upon us richly, richly, I just want us to make note of that word, richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior. And again, just to make this very clear, I don't, I'm pretty sure I made myself clear enough, but all these blessings are because of the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Our sin have, have, all of our sins have been washed by his blood, by his death. And the spirit that is working in our hearts, doing regeneration, conversion, and now adoption is because Jesus resurrected. We, we heard this just a few weeks ago where Jesus said, I need to go so that we can unleash the power of the spirit upon you on all flesh all the time. So it's through Jesus Christ. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Uh, Heir, uh, I don't think we use that term too frequently. Um, Maybe in in basketball, we talk about the heir apparent. But again, most people don't use the word heir. But heir is basically, kleiramanos, which is from the Greek word, is not just um, somebody who's adopted. Adoption is here, um, but the focus here is a little different. It's, it's some, like you would notice that the word heir sounds similar to the word inheritance because in the Latin, they're actually etymologically related. And it's not just you are an adopted child, which itself is a glorious thing, right? And we can do an entire sermon on that. And that's true, but that's not what Paul is really focused on. What Paul is really focused on here is the idea that we will receive an inheritance. And this word richly that I highlighted from plusios is not just richly. I mean, it's a good translation, but it's richly in the sense that it's opulent. Um, It's like ostentatious. It's um, very showy. It's this wealth that is just completely decked out, just drip after drip. It's just, it's just, next level, over-the-top type of lavishing. Uh, Not only is it undeserving, but it just seems a little too showy, right? And that's the word that Paul uses, is not only are we children who have been adopted, and again, that is an amazing thing, right? Again, I I wish I could preach an entire sermon, especially in Romans 8 and Galatians. I mean, again, that's attributed to the Spirit. But here Paul is talking about another glorious thing, where yes, we are sons and daughters of, of, of God, but we have been adopted as heirs. Meaning we will receive an inheritance. This God 
that we're talking about is the God of the universe. And throughout scripture, he's portrayed as a glorious king, full of splendor and majesty. And although this God is full of splendor and majesty, he is also very generous. And he not only regenerates us, again, that in itself, case closed, we should just be so thankful. Not only does he convert us, again, case closed, we should be so thankful. He adopts us and he gives us an inheritance that is opulent, that is ostentatious, that is just over the top. It is just so lavish. What is this inheritance? And before we even get there, again, just just track with the logical flow here. We were first described as slaves, spiritually dead objects of his wrath. And now, just a few sentences later, we are heirs receiving an inheritance from God. I mean, there are stories where... Uh, and we talked about this, especially earlier with like the you know the Black Lives issue, and just where um, I forget the name, but there was a, a black person whose brother was shot by a police officer, and the brother actually forgives the police officer. In some ways, that that is amazing. That in some ways, that police officer is is his enemy, and he forgives her. And the animosity between God and us is even worse than that. But I'm just trying to give a real life example. But imagine if not only he forgave her, but in his will, he says, I want to give my inheritance to this person who erroneously and probably with racial prejudice murdered my brother. That's nonsensical. Why would somebody... I mean, it's one thing for you to forgive your enemy, but for you to give your inheritance to your enemy, that's just... And that is what God is doing here. Is not only does He save us, not only does He forgive us, but He gives us an inheritance. And it's not like we're just some cute people who need His love. We are, again, objects of His wrath. And for Him to cleanse us, it wasn't just a snap of a finger. Jesus had to shed his own blood. He had to experience death. And not only that, but he gives us an inheritance. Now, what is this inheritance? Is There are different ways of explaining this. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about every spiritual bl- blessing, every heavenly blessing. But for me, the way I, I like to look at this is it is truly our uni- union with Christ. It is truly us having an intimate relationship with Christ, so intimate that it is described as if we are in Christ and Christ is in us. I mean, it's one thing for Christ to be our sibling or Christ to be our our spouse or Christ to be our father or whatever, but it is we are in Christ and Christ is in us. I mean, that's littered throughout the New Testament. And that's why, you know, the, the story that introduced us with is what was the greatest blessing that that wife had is not so much the first class flight or the sports car that they get to rent, but it's the fact that she, her identity, her matrimony, her, 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 who she is, is now forged with that noble husband. And how much more 
is not just a noble husband, but it's Christ himself. And what does this mean specifically? It means that even in our everyday situations, if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, as it says in 1 Corinthians, we have been blessed with the mind of Christ. All of the points of confusion that we experience in our day-to-day life, we're not on our own. Christ has given us his very own mind. He has given us wisdom. He has given us the capacity to take every one of our thoughts captive to his lordship instead of allowing our thoughts to dominate us. When we think about his righteousness, his life of obedience, all those things have now been imputed to us. His work ethic, how he tirelessly preached and healed people, how he was unwavering in praying and seeking after God's presence, that ethic, that commitment, that diligence is now ours. Especially in this day and age where we are working from home and it's so easy for us because there's no work-life balance. Oh, you know what? Let me just take this break because I can take care of it later. With Christ, he has given us even work ethic. The ability to love others, our enemies, those who betray us, those who talk behind our backs, those who disrespect us, whatever. Christ has given us the ability to love them, to forgive them. Not only are there profound implications in our daily life, like I just mentioned, but even eternally, what does this mean? That our inheritance is our union with Christ. We know everything that Christ experienced is something that we ourselves are going to experience alongside with him. Christ ascended into heaven. Right now, he is sitting on the right hand of God's throne. Right now, he is, all the angels are exclaiming the glory of who he is. We are going to share that with him. It's mind-boggling. Christ received a glorious, imperishable body. And even for ourselves, on the day of resurrection, every single one of us will experience a new body where it is imperishable. Even Jeannie and myself, like even for myself, I'm like afraid to look at myself in the mirror these days because I feel like I'm aging. I know that just sounds so vain. And uh, yeah, like I experience problems with my skin and like whatever. And you know, I'm exercising and eating right um, and all these different things. But I also understand, wow, I'm, I'm not living it. I'm dying now. Like my biologically, I am dying. And maybe some of us are experiencing something much worse. Not to make light of the situation, but some of us are experiencing true biological problems, even as we've been praying for some of these families. But one day... Our bodies, we will inherit glorious bodies because we know Christ did, because we have been united with him. One day when we are seated alongside with him, we will be the ones judging the angels. We will be the ones glorified. We will be the ones who experience an eternal, blissful, perfectly joyous relationship with God in everlasting intimacy. That is our destiny. Those things should shape the way we live our lives even today. We are not just former slaves, former enemies, and God just said, okay, I'll forgive you. Just don't mess up and just keep that ticket 
to heaven until the judgment day. No, no, we are heirs. We will we have an inheritance that is filthy rich. And the Spirit is the one who is progressively making these three aspects regeneration, conversion, and adoption more and more of a reality in our lives. Where our spirit becomes more and more awakened. Where our ability to repent and place our exclusive trust in Christ becomes more and more natural and ingrained in our hearts. And more and more we recognize who we are. That we are heirs. We are filthy, ostentatiously rich. We don't have to place our hope in these trivial, transient kingdoms that this world has to offer. That will fade away. And that are just really just it pales in comparison to what we have in Christ. Um, yeah, as we close, I do want to give us an opportunity to just really reflect and to respond. And you know, before I leave it up to um, you and the Spirit to just really reflect, you know, as I've been thinking about the role of the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of exciting things we're going to talk about throughout the sermon series about evangelism about his power, about healing and miracles and all these different things that is true in scripture and we're going to celebrate these things. But you know, before we get to any of that, the greatest miracle, the greatest provision, greatest blessing is what the Spirit has done in forging our union with Christ. And you know, like I, I empathize. I, I understand what it's like to live in this life and to live a life where there's one setback after another. We're just feeling just this funk and you can't quite place your finger on it. But as much as I want to empathize, I also want to gently rebuke, admonish. Brothers and sisters, like, do we know what our identity is? Do we, do we know what God has done for us? So undeserving. Do we know what our destiny is? That won't make the problems go away, but that will at least put those things in their rightful perspective. They don't have ultimate say in your life. Don't let, don't succumb to that. God has given us new life, a new power, where we can live worshipfully no matter what. Um, so yeah, at this point, um, you know, if we can just get in a posture of just receiving from the Lord, um, again, this, th these sermons are not just, you know, me just sharing what I think this biblically speaking, what's happening is the spirit is speaking to us through his word. So regardless of what you think about me, um, this is your time with God. So I just want to give us a moment uh, we need more moments like this throughout our busy week where we're always in front of a screen. Just calm our hearts and think about what was preached. Think about this passage. Think about what the Spirit is placing on your heart. What resonated? And I just want to give us a few moments to just interact with the Holy Spirit. And if you would like during this time, if, if, if one way of responding to God's Word is texting a prayer request or a prayer or even a question, feel free to do that. Um, and another way of responding is also... Um, yeah, for now, let's just focus on that. So uh, if we can just have a moment of response.